Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. This is Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. Over the next few months, we'll be tracing the lineage of female monsters in horror cinema. Each episode, I'm joined by special guests to dive deep into a monster movie or two. In today's episode, we're going to discuss the monstrous feminine, the terrifying mothers, and the gyna horror of David Cronenberg's 1979 body horror, The Brood. The plot follows a recently divorced man and his mentally ill ex-wife who has been sequestered by a psychologist known for his controversial, controversial therapy techniques. As they battle for the custody of their young daughter, a series of brutal murders start happening. I'm joined in this episode by Watershed Cinema producer and film critic Tara Judah, who's also the commissioning editor of our horror film journal Bloody Women. Check that out. We chat about revisiting the brood, its fascinating takes on divorce, patriarchy, women's bodies, and all the taboos and fears that come along with motherhood and birth. Oh, and a whole bit about how amazing Oliver Reed is in this film. We'll go into quite a lot of detail very early on, so if you haven't seen The Brood and you want to remain unspoiled, go watch it first and then come back to this episode. But if you don't mind spoilers for his 1970s film, then do enjoy a discussion about The Brood. Tara, we've got the greatest film ever to discuss today. I'm so happy. Yeah, I pretty much think, you know, I know I've probably said this about other films, but I'm going to go ahead and say it again. I think that this is the greatest film ever at this time. I think this is the greatest film ever having just rewatched this film. Speak to me in a week, it'll probably be something else. But seriously, The Brood is such an underrated movie. It is quite spectacular um, and quite affronting. and just full of so many different issues and problems. Um, I had such a great time rewatching this. It's been years since I've seen it, actually. And in the back of my mind, I think actually it's interesting how you change films in your mind. Uh, I expected it. Um, there's going to be lots of spoilers in this discussion, so tune out now if you yeah. don't want them. But I, I kind of expected the I, I changed the final scene in my head, mm -hmm. and I expected to see her almost like um, in Gremlins with all of those pods when the Mogwais are kind of um, turning. For some reason, I had this image of the, this big barn as the end scene where he goes in and finds all of these, these um, fetuses uh, in kind of wombs uh, about to be born, which isn't how the movie ends at all. It's totally different. So I it spectacularly managed to morph this movie into something else in my memory. So I had a really great time rewatching it because I didn't know how it ended. I mean, it, I was about to ask you, what was the first time watching the film like? So the first time watching the film, I think for me, was when I was going through, I didn't watch horror films as a kid at all. I was completely terrified of them. Um, I saw The Silence of the Lambs. I still think that's the most terrifying movie I've ever seen. And then I was completely frightened that and, and Stephen King's It. And then I was too frightened to see anything else that was vaguely horror for years. Um, so I didn't watch horror films till I was an adult. And I went through this um, period as an adult where I decided I was like in my early 20s that I was like strong enough to watch lots of horror movies. And so I went quite deep on horror films. 
films for a few years. And I was watching The Brood when I was discovering Cronenberg. So I kind of watched all Cronenbergs in like one go. Um, and The Brood was part of that. And I think actually The Brood was the one of the last Cronenbergs that I came to, even though it's, you know, not like his later film. I think I watched his later films first. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons for that was that The Brood wasn't as easily accessible. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I had to watch it on VHS. I don't think it had a DVD release at the time. And so I kind of was watching this film through the lens of a Cronenberg film. So for me, it was like I started with Videodrome, you know, a, a crash, like, you know, I kind of had this idea of body horror. And I think that's why in my memory, this film was all about these sort of like unborn children um, and these wombs, even though you only actually see one in the very end of this film. In my head, the whole movie was about these wombs and these 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 babies. Um, and so I I have this idea of the film as, you know, being mostly just about body horror, but actually body horror is like really only kind of a small portion of this movie in mm -hmm. some ways. It's deeply about psychoanalysis. It's deeply about... Uh, patriarchal structure it's deeply about divorce family unit um you know it's it's very much about those things as well as a kind of physical manifestation of body horror and i i, I guess i like this film because of this idea of psychoplasmics where you know it's very much kind of trying to find a way to use embodiment to explore ideas of psychology um mm -hmm. and you know in a very literal and you know crass way i guess in the film but i i, I really love that about it so let's get into this idea of it as a body horror. But as you mentioned, and I kind of had the same experience rewatching it, I also had this like very specific image ingrained in my mind from the first time that I watched it as a student of, you know, the final scene, the final confrontation of this kind of monstrous womb that's externalized and these kind of pots full of kind of disfigured baby creatures that were not quite babies and were not kind of creatures that were sort of otherworldly that's only the final confrontation but it is I think maybe because of Cronenberg's entire career and the you know his contributions to horror cinema it is sort of latched onto as a body horror but you're right like the it, the themes of it are so much more psychological and so much more social than they are bodily how do you think the film explores those ideas of psychology and um more cerebral things and externalizes them into horror yeah so i think you know in many ways this film is kind of it, it's it's really horrific but it's also really light on the horror and and i think that part of that is because it's a uh, a processing for Cronenberg of things that were going on for him at the time. So he'd just been through his own divorce, mm -hmm. which really comes out on screen. Um, you know, he's kind of processing those feelings. This is at a time where, you know, 1979, 1980s, like, things are kind of changing in the way that the family unit is perceived. Things are changing in the way that we understand psychoanalysis. So this film came out just about the same time, just slightly after Kramer versus Kramer. It's a really important um, touchstone for this film. You know, Cronenberg talks about the brood as being his Kramer versus Kramer, but more realistic. But, you know, this is a film that Kramer versus Kramer was really acclaimed, really, uh, you know, won an Oscar. It's, you know, it's, thought of as this fantastic movie because it deals with separation equally that's supposedly i'm not yeah. saying that's what it does that's the, the idea people think that this film is great because it deals with both his and her um feelings about this separation and it looks at the, the couple's povs and so cronenberg's really disgusted by this movie <laughs> kramer versus kramer um you know and 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 for him it doesn't 
it doesn't show uh, actually the equal parts. And I, you know, I'm I'm not going to do like a kind of it's good or bad feminism reading of this film because I think that's a bit too simplistic and it doesn't really help us in terms of discussing what the film does do. But there's deeply, there's a lot of anger that comes out in this film. I think Cronenberg's feeling really angry at, um, at his at his ex-wife and he's feeling angry about the process of divorce and separation. Um, and I think, you know, even in 1979, 1980, even though, you know, we're kind of post-civil rights, we're sort of in this, this uh, period where feminism is on the agenda where, you know, identity politics have come to the fore. I think that the, the disintegration or the kind of dysfunction of the family unit is still quite um, a fresh wound is probably how I would talk about it in a Cronenbergian sense is that, you know, that this, this wound hasn't had time to heal this idea of like families breaking up. People are still holding on to ideas um, from the fifties where the, the nuclear family is important. And so this film is really a disruption of that idea of the nuclear family. And it actually it's kind of interesting to look at this film as to how it affects a child. And to look at this film through the lens of the child, because, and in that sense, it actually reminded me, um, this film, you know, shares a lot with films like Don't Look Now from 1973. It's, you know, much later, but it kind of is, you know, visually, obviously with the red, um, it, it, there's, there's yeah, kind of yeah. echoes there. But also, I think just in terms of like, what happens when a couple's um, marriage dissolves and there's a, there is children involved and how how do they project onto the child and how do they project around the child and how what are they going to you know how are they going to kind of deal with that and what's interesting actually is that even though it's very easy to read this film as oh it's really kind of patriarchal and it's all about like this evil woman um, she's monstrous and all the rest of it it's also actually if you look at it from the child's perspective the father's really negligent too um, both of the parents come off pretty badly if you look at this from the child's perspective mm -hmm. because they're never paying attention to her. They're never really, um, they use the child. And it reminded me in that sense of films like um, much more recent films, like uh, what Maisie knew um, yeah. or kind of marriage story or something where you said, well, yeah, but like, what is the result of this and the psychological impact on the child? Because all they're doing really, the, all the parents are doing is kind of manifesting their psychology and she's literally manifesting her psychology in, in these kind of um, strange little children that are running around who are mm. like unborn or not quite born. And he, but he is also manifesting his in terms of what he's projecting onto her in terms of what he's projecting into the um, familial environment and the home space around him. He's so concerned. I mean, it's worth saying that there's like lots of really clunky, but pleasurable literal things in this film where he is literally a homemaker. He literally, his job is building strong foundations for family homes. I mean, it couldn't be more heavily signposted, but at the same time, this idea of kind of building homes is that he's so interested in the foundations upon which it's built that he's actually not paying attention to the, to the nuance. He's not paying any attention to his daughter. He doesn't notice, um, you know, until the, like she's in the bathtub that she's, mm got all these marks on her back that she's had a terrible time and really the sign is immediately there when he walks into the room to pick her up hmm. and the way in which she grabs onto him he should have realized something's terribly wrong but that kind of emotional subtlety he's just completely blind to it you know the teacher has already sort of suggested when he first we first meet her at the school something's going wrong he's blind to that he just sees it as oh you know like I'll invite her around for dinner and then like have a 
kind of pseudo date with her and she can also be my babysitter. He's so blind um, to what's going on because he's still consumed by the relationship with his ex-wife or his wife whom he's separated from. Let's dig into that a little bit. There is something really interesting in what you're talking about is kind of in the way that the child is weaponized, both as a weapon in between these two sparring ex-spouses, but also, you know, when with the wife's kind of externalizing of these creatures, she essentially creates miniature versions of her daughter that then kill on her behalf. They are killing and and enacting her rage, anyone who angers her or who she sees as a threat becomes a victim of them and there's a lot of scenes the kind of more straightforward horror scenes in this film essentially play with the idea that we're seeing these little creatures from behind they're kind of dressed in the same way as the little girl is as the daughter of the characters is so it's always kind of playing with the idea oh is this a a slightly psychopathic or a murderous child which is in itself a really terrifying idea and one that is very very well used in horror films as well you know there's nothing more terrifying than a little blonde kid in like wonderful corduroy uh, overalls uh, handling a scalpel and kind of going after you I mean I, f- I find I'm more terrifying than like Michael Myers to be honest uh, Gage from Pet Cemetery is still single-handedly one of the scariest images in horror cinema I've ever seen so I think the plays the film really smartly plays on that idea of um both weaponizing a child and making the child kind of the actual focus of a lot of the trauma, but that's not as flashy as a lot of them. So what do you think of this um of the way that they actually use not just the the character of the little girl, um, but also of the figure of the child in the film? Yeah, the figure of the child in this film is so important um, because actually we're looking at generational issues in this film as well, it's worth saying. So she's going undergoing therapy, which in some ways is to do with her marriage um, and the, the difficulty that she's having with raising her daughter and being a wife. But all of that stems from and is related to, in a very Freudian sense, um, the issues that she has with her own mother and her own father and her own her own role as a child. And so in 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 many ways, this this idea of being a mother um, is brought back to the idea of being a child. And and the two are really inextricably linked. Um, the idea of kind of giving birth to another child somehow is also not just the return of the repressed, but it's a state of regression. So she's going through this kind of cycle where um, what's repressed is coming up throughout the film, but she's also regressing in order for that repression to come out. So her parents, um, you know, her mother was abusive. We find out uh, her father didn't protect her enough. And so we've also got this thing about the roles that mothers and fathers play, which is imprinted then for her as a another generation as a mother is that, you know, her her ideas and they come out in her sessions are that, you know, fucked up mummies, you know, <laughs> are the ones that that do horrible things to their ch- children after she very, you know, she presents first as the, the, the kind of typical perfect, Oh no, mummies don't do that to their children. You know, like, no, mummies love their children. That very sort of like mummies are nurturing. Mummies are these, you know, endlessly beautiful kind of, uh, maternal figures that only nurture and love and then to yeah but fucked up mummies do these terrible things to their children and then what happens is father's roles are to protect them and the father doesn't protect them and so actually it's generational so you know yes in a in a sense the the it is about this couple and what they're doing to their child but it's also about this problem being cyclical because 
you know, and that's what's terrifying is that actually at the end of the film, you're mostly worried about what's going to happen to Candace, Candy, because she's had all of this put on her. Is she going to do this when she, you know, and the idea is that, you know, with heteronormativity, like children beget children beget children. So you have this kind of generational trauma that just keeps passing down. And the film really hammers that down because the last shot of the film is kind of the germ of the same affliction or the same effect that Candy's mother had kind of appearing on her body, even though she's a child. And the last, um, well, it's not the last shot, but the shot of her face after she's been exposed to so much trauma and massacres is just astonishingly cruel I thought in the sense that you can just see it all imprinted in her face it's never necessarily you know she's the the person that everybody's striving to protect and that are fighting over and in that fight they've just completely annihilated her psychologically yeah and there's this great scene um in the the grandmother's house when he he went and I mean you know talk about negligent parenting he leaves her with the grandmother who's clearly drunk in the middle of the afternoon and he's like I'm just gonna refresh my drink you know every 30 seconds um but he leaves her at, his, at the grandmother's house and she's looking through these black and white photos um it's this really interesting sequence where she's looking through the photographs of her mother in hospital who we find out was hospitalized because the grandmother beat her and she's kind of got this sense of um, melancholy comes up in, in this scene in the film. This is in, intense melancholia, which I think Cronenberg uses me- melancholia in the Freudian sense. So when I use that word here, I mean that it's melancholy for the loss of something that is not dead, but is gone. So they, they, are, they are mourning, actually a, a process of mourning um, something that is gone, which is this, the, and what, what is gone, what is lost is the hope of a happy childhood, the hope of a happy life, the hope of a mother-daughter relationship that is successful. And mm-hmm. so this melancholia is tinging this scene. So it's the harbinger of, w- of what is to come. Um, and the fact that these photos are in black and white, and then we later find out that the manifestation of Nola's uh, psychosis or her trauma is these children that only see in black and white. It is these children who like they're they're not complete, they're not born. They have this this basic view. Um it's it's deeply sad. It's that this manifestation is actually a, a kind of physical way of understanding the past. Um for her, these little creatures come out and they they can't see in color because she can't see her past in color. Her daughter can't see the past in color. Her mother can't see the past in color. There's no vibrancy to the way in which her life was lived. Um, and, and I think that is really well contrasted with the fact that this film is really colorful um, and visually very striking. So not just the, not just the blood that, you know, we can, which we love about Cronenberg, there's lots of beautiful red blood, but even the, um, the womb is kind of like fluorescent blues. <laughs> like it's this amazing color. And all the little jackets that the little creatures and the real kids wear as well. There's a lot of color in the interiors as well, are very vibrant, even though, you know, this is the 70s, it's kind of not as muted as the 70s aesthetic might might usually be portrayed as. Yeah, the home space as well has this fantastic, the, the decor in the home space is really interesting and, and, and very beautiful. There's this amazing wallpaper. I mean, there's lots of great wallpaper in this film for people who like wallpaper in cinema. <laughs> this wallpaper. is a really good film. <laughs> 
Um, but particularly in uh, the grandmother's house, there's these like climbing vines uh, that go up the wall in, in, in vertical stripes. And so there's this really interesting striking imagery of straight lines trying to contain something that is wild and un, un, unwieldy. And the vines cannot be contained. They literally are mm -hmm. overgrowing and kind of climbing up the walls. And you get this sense um, of not claustrophobia, but you get this sense of, of kind of being closed in upon just from the wallpaper. The minute we're in that house, we can kind of see that something, even though it's like otherwise should be a, a, a beautiful home space, something that is kind of calming and, and safe for this child, we know it's not safe because the wallpaper is bursting out and overgrowing in a really violent way um and I, I don't know whether or not like they just luckily found this place with this gorgeous wallpaper or if that was you know something they put up in the art direction i don't know mm. uh, the information on that but it is spectacular at creating a sense of atmosphere because it really does give us this sense that everything is bursting out and it's in that sense it mirrors the idea of psychoplasmic um you know as well where it's like something uh mental that is physically bursting out yeah, I think Cronenberg's films don't get enough credit for the sort of um, the production design and the atmosphere they create without being overpoweringly in your face. It's not really, it's very subtle. Like the way you describe it, it can be very easily kind of meld into the background, but it creates a sense of atmosphere for the viewer, I think, that it's it completely taps into the, film, the themes of the film as well. And But I wanted to ask you as well about the the figure of the bad mother, which is always, you know, controversial, and it kind of goes against our pre, um, pre-established ideas around motherhood in general, kind of generic ideas about motherhood. A mother is never bad, a mother can never betray, a mother always is loving and is always protective. Um, so how do you, and this film at that time, was at the time of release was somewhat criticized for the idea that is both of the mother figures in the film are portrayed as kind of being bad mothers and they're toxic and they're not um suitable for that role in many ways i've always found that figure very interesting so what do you make of both nola and her mother in the film I mean, I, I think this is such a fascinating question. So um, they are uh, simplistically, yes, they are both bad mothers. They're bad mothers. That's not well. That's not <laughs> bad is a loaded word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I do, but you know, in a simplistic way, of course, they're bad mothers. I mean, yes, you should never, you know, fucked up mummies beat their children. You shouldn't do that. But equally, I think that the reason they're bad mothers and the reason that the the whole thing is so stick, you know, there's such a stigma around it is that we don't allow mothers to also be people, um, which, which is a really big problem. Um, and we, we, we haven't in cinema, and that's because we haven't in society. We, we kind of imagine that once somebody is a mother, that that is one, a fulfilling role, um, that, they, that they will be completely fulfilled by being a mother because that's one, what their like biological sex is supposed to do to what their bodies should want to produce three that they should just somehow inherently be maternal and have those instincts and be nurturing because they're a woman and they have a womb so they're a cis woman with a womb um there's this kind of idea that like it's just a given and it's not that the thing that we know today is that that is not a given um and that people who are mothers are also people and that actually 
even though those two things don't have to be antithetical, they might be. Um, and that it might be that you think you'll be a good mother and then you're a mother and you're not a good mother. I mean, you know, I don't I don't think that uh, we have the space in these films, unfortunately. And it's because, you know, I mean, it's genre. We're dealing with stereotypes to a certain extent. And also, let's be honest, it's a nice, tight, tight one, one and a half hours. We don't have the space to explore the psyche of all of the characters in that much depth. Um, and I forgive the film that. But I think that, the problem of that is that you can't get into the fact that obviously this woman probably also had dreams about who she was as a person. Maybe she, and you know, we, we touch on it in that we, we, we get to know her backstory a little in that she was abused as a child. How do you break that cycle and how do you treat your children well when you weren't treated well, you know, and, and you might think, Oh, I'll never do that or I'll behave a certain way. But the thing is ultimately, you know, and it reminds me of like uh, frivolous films about kind of masculinity, like force majeure where how you behave in a moment might not be how you think you'll behave in a moment, how you will respond to something and how you will be might not be how you think it will be. Um, you know, as somebody who's now the mother of a one-year-old, I can tell you that like the thing that I have learned about being a parent, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more for me to learn ahead is that what I think I thought I knew is not true. Um, and having a child is actually like being confronted with your real self. Um, and that's all of the good and bad parts of yourself. And you really are confronted with it. And that is both a beautiful and wonderful thing and the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. On, uh, honestly, I think that, you know, there's not enough discussion about the kind of crisis of what happens to um, uh, an individual when they go through the, the process of becoming a parent. And this idea of the maternal being that everything should happen in a certain way. I also found this idea of like unborn or not born children in the mm -hmm. film really interesting um, that she gives birth to them, but she doesn't give birth to them in the traditional way. Mm -hmm that they are external to her body that she doesn't. And, and, and what's interesting is that they are sort of in a kind of womb, but they're not, they're not in a womb inside the body, which essentially means, you know, that they're not fed through the placenta, which is really the most nourishing way that a mother, a biological mm. mother um, is able to kind of raise her child is through this idea of the placenta. And so it's kind of, it's externalized, which is interesting, but it's also, um, it's also kind of like a perversion of the of the idea of the of the biological mother of this idea that's um, you know because a child grows inside the womb it's like intrinsically linked you know you've made that child it's a part of you that's ex that then is another human being you know that mother child bond that all the baby books I I reckon I don't know um, <laughs> that I'm told by. Instagram and societal pressures are <laughs> is the thing that defines uh, a mother-child bond. The fact that it's going to come from your body, which is obviously problematic for anyone who doesn't carry a child themselves or adopts or whatever. But this um, this image, obviously, it's made horrific because she is manifesting and growing these creatures. But they're kind of they kind of struck me as almost a perversion of the idea of biological motherhood, because as you mentioned, they're not growing inside of her. They're kind of like these weird. Uh, I, I'm struggling to come up with a word that doesn't sound absolutely disgusting. Like growths. Little, yeah, like growths, like external abscesses almost that grow outside of her. So even as kind of a, a perverted version of a mother figure she is not connecting with these creatures as much as she would you know with her biological childhood candy who she's also 
extremely aggressively protective of despite neglecting quite extensively so it's kind of that attachment to candy does not at all reflect um with her with her other manifestations with her other children so to speak yeah so that and what i found really fascinating about this idea of like a, a kind of perversion of um the idea of what natural birth might be is that actually um that's a really big taboo that people still don't talk about all the other ways that people have children. Um, and that might be that it's, it's surrogacy. It might be through IVF. It might be through, you know, all kinds of ways that people have children. There's actually, I I think, unfortunately, cinema makes us believe there's one way that people have kids, but Mm. that's definitely not true. And also the, the complications and the things that can go wrong in pregnancy. I really felt like this also represented um, a lot of those things like, miscarriages like missed miscarriages like ectopic pregnancies you know like all of these things that happen that can be quite distressing I mean I you know I know from uh, my personal experiences that I lost two pregnancies before I had a successful one and you know what physically happens to your body is in some ways could be classified as a cinematic perversion it's quite up you know it's it, it is psychologically distressing there's a physical outlet for it and I felt like this film really embodies that but equally you know if you had a different kind of pregnancy that either went you know went well or went badly in any way maybe you had to take lots of hormones maybe you know it was a, a kind of external thing in that it was a surrogacy I feel like this this film sort of somehow encapsulates that but what's what's I guess um, poignant about it is that it's embodying some of those values of the time, which is that those things are, you know, there is a conservative view that some of those things are perversions. And I think some people would be grossed out by that. Um, And that's why in a way I say this film's not really a body horror because actually it's just dealing with some of those issues that are quite painful that we go through in society, but we go through them really quietly. People don't talk about, um, people talk about their children or they, you know, talk about, when they're pregnant and it's successful and they might show like speaking of Instagram, people might Instagram their scan or whatever, when it goes well, people don't Instagram pictures of a scan of a a dead fetus for very good reason. But, you know, people don't Instagram. um, Oh, I, you know, like I had to go to hospital today to have uh, uh, to have a completed miscarriage because I couldn't do it myself. My body wouldn't do that. You know, and because it's, it's also that thing of like what the body does and does not do. It, it, it's easy to internalize those feelings. And that's why I also think this idea of psychoplasma is so fascinating. It's easy to internalize those feelings of my body would not do this thing. Therefore I have failed as a mother because it should naturally be able to do that thing. Right. Which is completely, you know, it's complete bollocks. It doesn't make any sense at all that that's how we would psychologically think about these things, but we do, we often internalize them. And so I think this film also, and I don't know whether that's intentional from Cronenberg's um, perspective, cause I'm not sure. I know they have a child, the age of candy at the time he was filming this film. Um, but I don't know whether or not they went through any of that other stuff. So I have no idea if that was part of like his, his life, his divorce or his experience. But either way, I think as a viewer and certainly as someone who's had um, experience with lost pregnancies, I do think there is that link between the kind of the melancholy is, is, is also again, comes up here and is perfect. It's a, it's a mourning um, for the loss of, of someone, but actually it's a kind of grief for somebody that you didn't even know. And that's a really particular and strange type of grief to go through to grieve for somebody who didn't exist. And so the film has that with these children that are like, they're kind of her children, but they're not really children. Um, Especially with that autopsy scene where they Mm -hmm. have the, the dead, um, the dead brood uh, on the table and it's like 
it's not a real person, but it kind of is, you know, and it's this manifestation of her feelings because what happens to a fetus that doesn't get to complete to term is that it just becomes somebody you project onto. Um, mm. It just becomes somebody imbued with all of those experiences and feelings that you have that have to go somewhere. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that as well. That's I'm I'm sorry that you had to go through that. It's it's an incredible reading, and I hadn't even thought about reading into the brood in that way. But you're absolutely absolutely on point. And I wanted to pick you up on your interest on the psychotherapy side of things in the film because that makes up essentially the framework of the brood. Because we start with the character of with Oliver Reed's character of Dr. Racklin, and we start with an example of his version of therapy, uh, which externalizes trauma onto the body. And we get in with a really intense head-to-head therapy that's also performed in front of an audience. So there's both an element of very intense new agey psychotherapy, psychotherapeutic approaches, and also um, a scenario that is reminiscent of cults. And he very much kind of presents himself almost as a cult-like leader. You know, he's almost both incredibly accessible and opening himself up in front of his, you know, followers and his patients, but also extremely closed off and elevates himself and closes himself off, closes himself off from people. Um, so kind of what did you make of that, not just of his character, but of the therapy that he designed throughout the film? Yeah, it's really fascinating that Oliver Reed plays this role, actually, because um, he embodies and kind of is that character as a person as well. Um, So even just kind of reading around this film, um, I discovered that he was dyslexic. And so had a real problem if they would make scene changes to the script and they would make changes to the script on the day, but because he was dyslexic, he couldn't read the changes so easily. So he would kind of exteriorly call everyone else amateur and have a little bit of a kind of like fit about it or, you know, sort of behave in a diva way. Um, because he he couldn't kind of protect that. And I think that actually is is really embodied in the character. And I I, I see that first scene of the therapy session. It's like they're they're in a theater watching a play it doesn't feel like a therapy session it's not until in fact it's not until we kind of properly introduced to dr raglan that we even realize it is therapy at first you're like oh he's late to the theater and then you know the way that like um the person next to him is like oh he's brilliant he's just brilliant it feels like oh this is a performance this is an incredible performance they're watching and of course to some degree it is they are performing uh, the the psychology on the body. That that's also what psychoplasmics. The idea of it is is this performance on the body of what goes on in the mind. Um, it's this idea of performing the past, of performing trauma as a way to re-experience, live it through it, and to deal with it and to get past it. Um, it is the performance of all of these things that manifest in these physicalities. Um, so, and I find as a you know for a filmmaker, this is deeply interesting uh, as an activity to kind of have in your your film this process that very much mirrors um, acting and it's even fascinating in relation to a film like Kramer versus Kramer um, where you have on the one hand this film was really critically acclaimed but also on the other hand it's a deeply controversial for Dustin Hoffman's treatment of Meryl Streep you know he slapped her in real life the first day on set and it was her first big movie and she didn't know he was going to do it and she repeatedly says that you know he had harassed and bullied her on the set of the film um 
that that this way of acting, this kind of method acting of the era, which was really popular, which was, you know, very masculine, um, is that it was this idea of kind of taking the psychology of act of acting and making it physically manifest, whether or not that meant that there was consent with the, the partner in the scene or the person you're dealing with. And this scene of the trauma is actually um, a, a, a classic scenario of abuse. And we see it later with Michael's character when he's, he's so desperate, um, you know, to, to kind of have it reenacted on him because he needs that father figure. He needs somebody to push him around and tell him what to do. And I wondered as well, if Cronenberg's kind of working through ideas of like the role of the director in kind of directing the actors in the Mm. role of um, kind of forcing out these performances and trying to bring something to the fore because he gets remarkable performances out of his act. I mean, you know, like she is just, a staggeringly good in in the way that she switches status in that final scene. Oh God, yeah. Like Samantha really Egger, yeah, yeah. Samantha Egger, sorry, P- perfect performance, you know. And so I wonder about the process of him working with actors, even though you know quite often his actors will say, "Oh, his only direction was more blood," you know, mm. that he didn't really kind of give them that much direction. I guess he must have created at least an atmosphere of freedom in which for them to to perform. So. That, that on one level is really fascinating. Also, we know from Cronenberg's later career that he was deeply interested in Jung and Freud because he made a dangerous method. So we know that he's, you know, always been interested in psychoanalysis. And I think, you know, during the 70s and 80s, this is just after the boom of film studies really going for it with psychoanalysis. Freud is still very much popular at this point. I mean, today we tend to kind of dismiss psychoanalysis and Freud, but I think when we revisit films this era, it's really important to remember that contextually people were really heavily into those ideas. They were really affected by them. Things like dreams were people really interested in what are your dreams. People were really interested in gender and the way that that related to your family unit and the kind of, you know, the way that you might have been raised by your mother and father. And he's really digging into those ideas in this film. He's exploring psychoanalysis on screen. I mean, I really think he's using that as a framework in which to kind of hold his idea um, of horror. And that that's why the horror is both psychological and bodily. And that's why mm. the two kind of meet and it's the manifestation of one upon the other and I wanted to dig a little deeper into the final scene where Nola's um creations are revealed where she reveals herself to to her ex-husband and he kills her so there's kind of different elements of horrificness to that scene I mean on the one hand it's their final confrontation it's him trying to appease the monster and her revealing herself and revealing to be essentially the the architect of all of this destruction this rage mother and and then her destruction so how what did you make of those of that final confrontation so, I mean, the the kind of first and most simplistic reading of that confrontation is really quite horrific because it is like, wow. So domestic violence leads to the death of uh, his wife and the mother of his child. And she is still blamed for her own death. <laughs> she is literally killed at the hands of the patriarchy and still she is blamed for that, um, which is quite astonishing and staggering in one sense. But let's put that to a side for a moment because there's also other things going on in that scene. So she's wearing white, which you know, white is a really loaded color and especially in this flowing cape and the way that she's wearing mm. it. This is, is very much like um, uh, you would imagine a wedding dress of that era, to be perfectly honest. This is almost like their wedding night. It's like the unveiling of what she's been this 
it, the scene that precedes it is really important too because he's casting having to play this apologetic um husband who's you know trying to win her back she's really ancillary and what's fascinating about that scene and i i mentioned it before in terms of status is that the status changes so when we start that end sequence he is lower and she is higher and he is kind of begging her for something because he wants something from her he wants the safety of candy mm -hmm. She doesn't have the power at the start of that scene, even though ultimately, of course, she she kind of does. But then the status changes um, and she sort of becomes this overpowering, um, overbearing woman who's taking control and taking power of the scene until he violently takes the power back. So the status keeps changing in the scene. You don't quite know which of them is going to succeed. It's like, oh, he's lower than her. He wants something from her. Oh, wait, she's escalating and asserting her power. Oh, hang on a minute. Ultimately, he can still kill her and just take her life away and the life of the brood so th this kind of plays out and i think that that is to do with this idea of like that their their second wedding as it were that this is the real marriage of them this is actually what them coming together is is that he had she is going to be annihilated by him um, he is the marriage is essentially the, the complete annihilation and wipeout of her as a being. It is the refusal of all of her pain and suffering, but it's also the the death of her anger and her rage. Um, you can read into that what you want. Maybe you know that's Cronenberg like dealing with his own marriage, kind of like he wants to annihilate the rage of his ex-wife. I don't know. Maybe he just wants to annihilate her and maybe that's a fantasy, you know, that he's kind of putting into this film. It's a much safer way to do it than to actually physically harm her. Um, I, I don't kind of know really, you know, without getting inside his psychology, how much of that is a, a sort of I guess, a projection of what he's going through. But I think that there is definitely this struggle with the power dynamics and that it's devastating that it ends, I think, honestly, for me, it's devastating that it ends with her death. In that sense, it also kind of, even though it blames her, it lets her off for her monstrosity because she she's not forced to live. We mm. don't have to find a way. And, but you know, both the mothers are, are killed in this film, her mother as well, very early on. So... The, the kind of monstrous feminine or this idea of a monstrous mother is just annihilated. We don't get the idea that she will have to, and what's much harder in some ways is to work through your anger and try to become mm. a better person and a better mother. Um, I mean, I think that, that it would have been, I would love to, to kind of know the process that of how she could recover. Could she recover from this? Um, this therapy in many ways in that sense also is not helpful because it doesn't, no, nobody is cured. None of the patients are cured. In fact, they're all left in this terrible state. Dr. Raglan's really neglectful. I mean, he sort of neglects all of his other patients to focus on this one who he can't help in the end anyway. Um, who, and, and ends up being the death of him. It kind of wipes everybody out except for this idealistic patriarchal figure. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I think maybe that is just kind of Cronenberg trying to make peace with the fact that it's sort of him and his daughter left maybe in the wake of what was potentially a bad marriage. Um, mm. It's also worth saying this is around about the time that throughout the world, and it, it's different in different places, but this whole thing about no-fault divorce is is coming in around the 70s and 80s. So mm -hmm. um, in 1970 in America, in California, um, they kind of had, had this no-fault divorce had passed. So maybe this is also why he hates Kramer versus Kramer so much is that it's, you know, this American idea of like no-fault divorce being something that is just the parties are separating. In Canada at this time, no-fault divorce isn't yet a thing. You know, it doesn't come in until 1986. So... 
this idea of wanting to assign blame for divorce was very much an attitude of the time. In fact, it was a legal requirement of the mm-hmm. time. To kind of start wrapping up a lot of the ideas that we've been talking about, how do you think Nola fits into female monsters on screen? I mean, we've been co- we're, we're going to be covering, you know, from the 1930s Panther Women to very recent horrors in the season. So I'm curious to see your thoughts about where you think this one, this one in particular sits. Yeah, I think the the most um, wonderful thing about where this sits is that in essence, or kind of on first look, you're like, oh, she's supernatural, like it's a supernatural film, you know, there's this kind of supernatural element to it. But actually, when you really think about it, there's not really that much of a supernatural element to this film. It's actually just a person. Um, She has no special powers. She has, uh, there is a physical manifestation of her psychology, but that's that's not really a superpower or a power in any sense, actually. And it is ultimately that it is not a power because it is her demise. She's not really able to, I mean, yes, she, she, you know, she doesn't know her brood is doing enacting these killings, but that's just the result of pain and grief on others from her personal trauma. It's not actually something that she supernaturally is kind of doing. That's just a a kind of, you know, very loose sort of metaphor for it. And I think in that sense that, you know, she's, she's a monster or what's most monstrous about her is that she's just a person. She's just a woman who had a terrible childhood and doesn't have an idea of how to be a good mother and therefore isn't a good mother. Um, and in a way, that's the power of the horror in this film because that is terrifying because that could be any one of us. You know, that could be me. You know, that could be... And and certainly, like, the psychology and what you go through in, in becoming a mother is not easy. So, you know, you're a person, you're going to make mistakes, you're not going to, I mean, hopefully you're not going to beat your children, and certainly I would never beat my child, but you are going to make mistakes that are going to imprint on your child. That's the horror of this film. And your child, and that's why that last shot is of Candy, that's why the film ends with her. Because what happens is there is another person who has to live through this. Um, And that's really pretty scary. That's an extraordinary summation of it and to to really wrap up the our conversation do you think it's a film that's worth revisiting for contemporary horror fans not just Cronenberg completists but especially I'm interested in kind of um in female horror fans because this film does historically get a bit of a bad rap for being misogynistic or for portraying women as um as monstrous and you know necessary to eliminate essentially but do you think it's a it's a film that's worthy of revisiting with contemporary eyes I do and I I really think and I know that you do because you know you that that is like largely the project of the final girls and the project of these podcasts and all the writing and everything that's going on is that there is um yes it is very easy to simplistically kind of dismiss uh, a lot of the genre and, 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 you know, contemporarily and historically. Um, and I understand the desire for that. And I don't, I don't have any animosity for people who just don't want to watch this stuff and it isn't for them because I totally get it. But I also think that um, the, the psychology and the ideas that go into cultural um, product is always 
um, relevant to us because we don't live in a cultural vacuum because this is how we understand and, and, and process things in our time and how we, we look and understand the history that came before. And I think that there is nuance in the artistic merit and direction of this film. I mean, I haven't even mentioned um, Howard Shaw's amazing score that goes with this film. I don't know how I managed to talk about it for so long and not say that. <laughs> but, you know, that there are, there are things in this film in the kind of craft of filmmaking that work to how do we understand and how have we built up these pictures I mean yes of course there is there is a reading of this film that it is just misogynistic but I don't think that we should just throw it in the bin I do think it's a one it's a really interesting and entertaining film but two also that it actually does signpost lots of other things that aren't just about the patriarchy being heroes. And also, like I said, I don't actually think the patriarchy come off so well in this film either. Um, I think ultimately, actually, a condemnation of the pressures of domesticity and the idea and the kind of falsity of the ideal of the nuclear family as much as it is of, of, of motherhood or fatherhood. Thank you so much, Tara, for all of your incredible insight and for sharing so much of your experiences in revisiting and talking about the film. Where can people find out more about your work online? can find me at tarajuda.com. Uh, it's terribly updated, but uh, maybe, by, maybe by the time this says, I will have uh, actually put some more contemporary links there. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of the Final Girls podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you can, please do take the time to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. And you can find out more about what we do on thefinalgirls.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalgirls.uk. You can also follow Tara on Twitter at Midnight Movies. And I tweet a lot of broody memes on Anime Demented. Thank you for listening. And next week, we'll be back with a double dose of 80s movies.